Titus 3, 3 through 7 says this. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Amen. This morning we've finished our time in the Minor Prophets, and next week we begin Advent. And so we had uh, one week, and sometimes um, pastors will call that a, a one-off, time, time to preach a one-off or a standalone. Um, and so this week, I was ch- trying to figure out, man, God, where do you want us to go this week? Um, and I had a lot of ideas, but I ended up in this passage because it's this beautiful, succinct, very clear passage of Scripture that points to the, the whole of Scripture. Like we have all of Scripture given to us from Genesis to Revelation, and yet all of it is telling this one story of who God is, who we are, and what God has done to rescue us and redeem us. And then you look at this passage, and you're like, man, it's all right there. And so we're going to spend a little time this morning wetting our appetite for next week when we begin to think about Advent and like the coming of Christ. Why is it great that, that Christ would come? Was well, because we have this good news that Christ has come and he has done everything needed to save to save unto good works, to save and and invite us into the work that he's doing of redeeming and making all things new. And so I pray that that would be what's on our hearts throughout Advent. The other thing I was thinking is, man, of all the things we could be thankful for this week in Thanksgiving, what am I most thankful for? I'm most thankful for Jesus. I'm most thankful for the work that he's completed on the cross. I'm I'm most thankful for his resurrection, which means that he has given new life. I'm most thankful for the the beauty of the triune God that we see even in this passage. And so just thinking about thanksgiving, like are we thankful for this or do we we see the, the gifts of God rather than seeing the giver? And so I'm just hoping that that God would do that in my heart and that he'd do it in all of our hearts this week. Paul writes this letter to Titus. Um, there's not a lot that we know about Titus, but Titus is a, is a church planter. He's a pastor. He's an elder in Crete. And Crete is an island in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. And so it sounds like at some point um, a church was planted there. Maybe Paul went there. We don't have that listed in all of his travels and acts, but um, it's very possible that he went. But what we do know is that there were Cretans, people who were from Crete at Pentecost. And so as God pours out his spirit upon them, they go back to their, to their homeland, to their country, and they plant a church. And so Paul is writing to Titus, who is the, the, the leader of the church, and he's telling him how to put things in right order, how to worship God rightly as the gathered and the scattered people of God. And so to, to give us that context, you, you begin to see that it, if you spend a lot of time in Titus. This morning we're just jumping in and jumping out, and so I'm not going to lay a lot of the groundwork, but know that um, there's, a, there's a church plant that's, that's there, 
and that Paul is writing to Titus to tell them how God should be rightly worshipped. So you have an opening, a greeting. You have a, a, the need for proper leadership. And so Paul is telling Titus how to appoint proper leaders. Uh, there's a problem that there's false teachers there. And so Paul addresses that. He talks about Christian living in, in contrast to those false teachers. He talks about proper living by age and gender groups. So he talks, maybe you know that he talks to old men and young men. And he talks to older women and younger women. And so he's got these specific ways that he calls them to worship God depending on who they are. But all of it is infused with the gospel. Like you have this passage, but then before that, at the end of chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, you have another beautiful, succinct gospel passage that points to, listen, to do any of this rightly, you have to have a heart change that has taken place because God is good and he, he's the sole motivation of everything that you would do. If that doesn't happen, then all of this other stuff is just is ridiculous and unnecessary. But if the gospel's true, then it leads us to these other things. And so Paul infuses the gospel into this letter to Titus. He gives a, a command of proper living, particularly with respect to the outsiders at the beginning of chapter 3, and then that moves right into this gospel proclamation in the middle of chapter 3. He goes on to talk more about false teachers and how we should live and how we should have good works, and then he exhorts them to go and, and to do that. So this is Paul writing a letter to Titus, and it's centered around the basis of the gospel, and that gospel then, he's calling them to live rightly out of. So I pray that God would do that in us today, that he would both transform and, and shape our hearts and our motivation, but that that heart motivation would then change the way that we live, our actions, that we would be able to apply that to how we live daily. So let's ask God to do the miracle that only he can do. God, I thank you that you meet us in this place today. Thank you that the thing that we would beg you do, you have done and you continue to do. You have come and you've given yourself for us and it's enough and it's sufficient and yet you are constantly opening eyes for the first time to your goodness and your loving kindness and you're, you're opening our eyes over and over and over to your beauty and your mercy and your love for us. So God, would you do it again? I pray that you would do it in a way that is, is very real and very tangible to us, that we would experience how high and how wide and how long and how deep is the love of Christ. That it wouldn't just be a head knowledge, but it would be a heart experience. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. He opens with the uh, bad part of the good news. Bad part of the good news. Verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Some of us don't even know what malice and envy are, like we'd have to look it up. Some of us would read this list and we would say, that's, that's not me. I'm actually a pretty nice person. But if there's one thing like 
Matt alluded to in the prayer of confession from our time in the Minor Prophets, we have seen that both God's people, his chosen people, and those that were outside of his choosing were, were called and they were judged as wanting, right? They didn't have, they did not love God right. They were disobedient. They followed their own passions and their own pleasures rather than what God had given them. And that we go all the way back to the very beginning. God gives Adam and Eve the, the run of the whole garden, the like magnificent, perfect, everything you could hope for garden, except for one thing, and that one thing then is what they, they have a passion for, what they have a desire for, what they chase after. And it points to this, this thing that's inside of us that says, on my own I can live. I don't need God. I don't want God. I, maybe I want his things. Maybe I want the benefits. But I don't really want a king and a lord and someone who would tell me what to do. And so all of us find ourselves under this judgment. For we ourselves, like Paul's writing this, Paul, who's one of the leaders of the church, is writing this to another leader of the church, and he's saying, for you and me, we were like this, chasing what we wanted, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, wasting our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Listen, that's the truth of who we are. And if you need to to be reminded um, you can think about the last time you didn't get what you wanted. How did you react to that? Whether that's from your parents telling you something, or whether that's a, a brother or a sister telling you something, or you as a parent expecting your child to do something, or whatever relationship it is, the last time that you didn't get what you wanted, how did your heart respond? And most of us can look at this passage and we can say, man, I, I was angry, I was hateful, I was envious that others get what they want and I didn't get what I want. That's just the natural condition of our heart. And yet, we can also look and see where God has been changing us. Where God has been uh, changing our hearts and our wills to, to be submissive to those that he's put in authority over us. Or even those that we're in relationship with to put others first. And so both of these things are true, but the natural Before God appeared, right, because we're going to look at what happens when God appears, but before God appeared, this was our lives. Nothing but brokenness, sin, anger, pride, rebellion. That's the state that we're in. And then we get to the but. As we look at our lives, though, I think it's, Helpful, Thomas Merton gives a quote and he, and he says this about like just the idea of what Matt was saying. That, that how do we use the sin? Like how, how do we take the sin that we, that we all have and it give glory to God? We do it because we have to recognize our need for a Savior. Thomas Merton says this, but the man who's not afraid to admit everything that he sees to be wrong with himself and yet recognizes that he may be the object of God's love precisely because of his shortcomings can begin to be sincere. His sincerity is based on confidence not in his own illusions about himself but in the endless, unfailing mercy of God. 
Here's the other thing about being honest with your sin. It opens doors for your neighbor to realize if God can save a sinner like you, then he can save a sinner like me. Does that make sense? Like, like the reality is that they don't need us to put our best foot forward. They need us to put our worst foot forward and say, but God, but God has done something. They need to be able to see the sin in our hearts and, and how we war against it. Because otherwise we're going to give them this perception of, of what they should be striving for with, without the good news of what they need to get there. And so I pray that God would do that, that he would, he would give us that, that bravery that comes from knowing that we cannot be more fully known and fully loved than we are right now by a God who loves us and knows us. Because it's only out of that confidence that we're actually going to live lives of sincerity that, that Merton's talking about. I'm going to say this again. His sincerity is based on confidence, not in his own illusions about himself, but in the endless, unfailing mercy of God. Verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Listen, anytime you're in a passage of Scripture, our first question should be, who is God in this passage? We quickly jump, jump past that and we try to take it to this application piece and say, what do I need to do? How do I need to think? What do I need to be in light of this? But the, the first and foremost thing that we need to get in every passage of Scripture is who is God? And as we look at this verse, we see who God is. We see his goodness and loving kindness. So out of that, out of just this first part, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. I just pulled out four things. We know God's good. You don't have to go very far in Scripture to find somewhere where it says that God is good. Now we have this thing, this mantra that we've kind of created in our culture that we say God is good. And then you say, all the time. And then I say all the time, and you say, God is good, right? So listen, but we've turned that into this very familial, casual thing, and it, it's good to remember. But I think I'm really flippant sometimes. I think I just know that, hey, he says that, and I'm supposed to say this. The reality is I'm not thinking about that. And I can say that, and then in a moment, I can be really frustrated with God and not say with my heart and with my mind and with my soul that God is good. I'm instead saying that he did, he's not good enough. There's something else that he should have done that I'm, I'm dissatisfied with. But you look in Scripture, and any time God speaks, we hear that he's good. See, see, we didn't come up with that idea that God is good. It wasn't like the, the, the phrase that we made. No, it's Psalm 145.9 says, The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. The psalmist continues because he's not just good, he's abundantly good. It says, Oh, how abundant is your goodness in Psalm 31.19, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. God is good. He's good in, in both the way that we think like a, a good gift giver, but he's also good in his righteousness. 
which means that he's just. And so out of just the goodness of God, we begin to extrapolate all of these things about who God is. Second thing we see is that God is loving. That's the thing that everybody wants. We want a loving God. We want a God God who loves us just as we are. It's why John 3.16 is so well known, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. So many of us know that verse because it, it portrays the love of God which is what we want. But what we have in God is not a feeling. It's not something that fades. It's not something that changes. Psalm 136, 3 says, Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. The Lord's love is steadfast and never changing. You think about, well, why in the garden then did he kick him out if he really loved them? Go back to the first thing. God is good. And not only did he, he kick them out of the garden for their disobedience, but he provided a way for them to still have relationship with him because he loves them, because he's good. Another thing we see from the passage is that God is kind. Hosea 11.4 from the Minor Prophets says this, I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases a yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. God is kind. Psalm 145, 17 says, The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. I think as we begin to uh, wrestle with these things, our hearts and our minds are opened. We begin to see how God is good, how he's kind, and even the little things in life. I love the way John Piper talks about the kindness of God. He says this, God loves to lavish kindness on us. The bigger your conception of God, the more amazing this is. God is the creator of the universe. He holds the galaxies in being. He governs everything that happens in the world down to the fall of a bird and the change of your hair color or the loss of it. He is infinitely strong and wise and holy and just. And Paul says he is kind. And because of this kindness, we are born again. Let your very existence as a Christian tell you every hour of every day, God is kind to you. I think as we grow in our love for God, we begin to see the kindness of God showing up in even the little things of life. We're like, man, God is kind. He didn't have to save me, and yet he saved me. He didn't have to go beyond saving me and continue to give me all of these things and and sculpt me and change me into his image, but he's doing that by his grace and through his mercy. God is kind. And finally, we see that God is merciful. From, from verse 5, but according to his own mercy. A merciful God is the way that God has always revealed himself. You go back to Exodus when God visits Moses. Moses goes up the mountain to, to see who God is. And God speaks to him. Exodus 34, 6 and 7 say this, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord... A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, the children's children to the third and fourth generations. Man, like you read this 
But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, you see the the magnificent beauty of God. He's good, He's kind, He's loving, He's merciful. All of this. How do we know that? Because not only do we get to see who God is, we get to see what He's done. It says that He saved us. He saved us. If that's true, if he's saved us, why has he saved us? And we have an answer of why he didn't save us. He didn't save us based on our works, based on the righteousness that we bring to the table. He didn't save us because we, we came after him. It says that we were disobedient, we were hating, we were full of malice and envy, but God did something and he came to us. God saved us. And not because of our works. I think this is huge. And maybe, maybe because we've all, a lot of us have sat in church our whole lives, or um, for portions of it, we, we really, I don't know, there's something that, we, that we, we feel like we have to do. We feel like, okay, to be a good Christian, I have to go and do these things. But here the gospel is saying that he saved us not because of our works. It's a subtle but huge error in our understanding today. And it's not just today. Martin Luther, during the Reformation, said this, The sin underneath all our sins is to trust the lie of the serpent, that we cannot trust the love and grace of Christ and must take matters into our own hands, that we need to do our own salvation." That we need to get right enough with God so that we can come before Him and then He'll do the rest. But listen, we're not saved by our works. We're not saved by them, but they're evidence of the salvation that's taken place in us. I love Lewis. He says, the Christian does not think God loves us because we are good, but that God will make us good because He loves us. Man, that's kind. We know we're not good. And so we know that God doesn't love us because we're good, but He's making us good because He loves us. We are saved to good works. We're not saved so that we can sit and be complacent and be completely okay now, and we can just say, you know what, thanks God, I'm going to go and do my own thing now. No, we're saved to good works. Ephesians 2.10 says, for we are His workmanship, Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And all throughout the book of Titus, Paul is writing to the church in Crete. And he's saying, listen, the good works go hand in hand with the gospel. They they go hand in hand with the transforming work of the heart being played out in the lives of the people of God. Titus 2, 11 through 14, right before our passage today, say this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. 
There should be a zeal in our heart to want to honor God with our lives. If there's not, then we have to go back and ask the question, God, have you done this thing? Have you, by the power of your spirit, regenerated my heart and washed me clean? And if, if so, then why, why, why am I not pursuing you and instead pursuing my own gain? It's not a question of our behavior. It's a question of our heart, our motivations. Titus 3.1 He continues, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Titus 3.8, the other piece of bread to this sandwich that we're looking at, says this, the saying is trustworthy and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. There's a portion of our life that's devoted to good works. All of life after the miraculous change of heart that God does in us is devoted to this this good work that he's doing. But the key is that we get that in the right order. If we get it in the wrong order, it's either going to lead to a self-righteousness because our works, we think our works are doing something for God, or it's going to lead us to this great shame because we think that I'm not doing enough for God and I'm never going to. But if, if, and so there's a striving that happens if we're saved by our works. But if we're saved to good works, then there's a rest and a trust that God said, hey, I'm faithful to complete the good work that I've begun in you. So now I get to rest in that and walk in it. But it's all about the order. There are people that, um, that see the way that we live and ask questions about why we do what we do. And I think we just have to be really explicit and careful when we begin to s- describe our lives And stay away from saying, well, because that's what we're supposed to do. Or because that's the right thing to do. I mean, that's true, but is that why we're doing it? No, we're doing it because God has done this great work of redemption in our hearts and in our lives. He has saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy. And if we don't get to that point, all we're giving them is moralism and try to do better. But if we can come and be like, but I'm, I'm a sinner. Like, I don't want to do so much of these things all the time, and yet God is changing my desires. He's making it so that I love his good works, and I want to participate in them, and I want to be his hands and his feet in the redemption that he's doing. But because of his great mercy... Listen, the mercy of God is portrayed at the cross, and we've already sung about it. We've spoken this truth. We know this is true, and yet today our hearts need to remember that it's true, that at the cross, the mercy of God was expressed. Because you and I, according to verse 3, were foolish, disobedient, led astray, and we know the payment that is due for our sin. Death. Punishment. Separation from God. And we believe that when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, when Jesus came and when he bore that to the cross, he took our sin and our shame, if we are in Christ today, 
Listen, we say that every week, and yet it should never get dull or old or pat, right? It should never just be something that we say. It should be something that we rejoice in every time it's said. Because you were a sinner. I am a sinner saved by grace. Jesus bore our sin and our shame to the cross. And at the cross, he received the wrath and the punishment of God for us. But that's only half of the story of what happened at the cross. Because not only did that happen at the cross, but at the cross, now we make that exchange where he puts in us his righteousness. The good works that we're talking about are done out of a love for Jesus, out of a love for the Father, that Jesus walked out in his life. And now he puts that in us. We become heirs to this thing. And it's beautiful. All of this is because of the great mercy of God. It's the good news that we receive mercy because God laid on Jesus the punishment that we were due and gave us the inheritance that, that his son should have because of walking faithfully. We, we are now credited with that righteousness. If we are in Christ, we have died and we have been raised with him. The cross is not the end of the story. Three days later, he rose again, defeating sin and death. And so today, if we're in Christ, we walk with a, with a God-given ability to no longer be slaves to sin and death, but to be slaves to the righteousness of God. How does that happen? Man, this passage, like we need to, rem- we need to memorize this. This should be on our hearts. It, it's got the fullness of the scope of the story of Scripture. It's also got the fullness of the beauty of God. We see the triune God in this passage. It says, God saved us. We think of the Savior being Jesus all the time, but, but when God, our Savior, appeared, God laid on Jesus the sin that, that we have. And then God punished the Son. If the saving has to happen, then someone has to punish the Son. God, in His loving kindness, punishes His own Son for you and I. So you have God the Father, you have God the obedient Son, and then you have the Spirit that does this thing where He washes us and renews us because of the work of the Son. Verse 5, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is active in your salvation. He's active. He's taking the work of the Son and applying it to a sinner so that it's, it's true and He's sealing it. This regeneration, that's that new birth. We think, of, think about being born again. Nicodemus talks about being born again. But born again has now just become language for us. Well, what are we talking about being born again? Regeneration. We have it from the Old Testament, Ezekiel 36, 25 through 28. We we touched on it in our time in the Minor Prophets. But it says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. 
And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause, my, cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. The spirit regenerates our hearts. Regeneration is new birth. The old thing is dead and a new thing has been created. It's regenerated, recreated. We believe that that God does this in the life of a believer before we do anything. He comes in and he takes our hard heart and he gives us a heart of flesh because we can't do it. We can't make that happen. So if that's happened, it's the loving kindness of God our Savior who has done that in you. Do we believe that? Like, do, or do we just think that it's circumstances because I was born into this family or, or I met this person and, and, and so I've gone to church and I've heard these good things and so we just chalk it up to circumstance? Or do we see it as a pursuing God who has come and taken our heart of stone and given us a heart of flesh by the power of His Spirit, regenerating our hearts and renewing, washing clean like this heart that was sinful and broken, he's washed it and now it has a love for him and a desire for him. I love the beautiful triune God that we see in this passage. God the Father saving by the obedience of the Son through the application of the Spirit in our lives. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. How do we get that spirit? Whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. What we need today is to believe this to be true. We need a new heart, a regenerated heart, that would say, God, you have done all of this and you are so kind and so loving. Dane Ortland says it like this in his book, Gentle and Lowly. It is one thing as a child to be told your father loves you. You believe him, you take him at his word, but it is another thing unutterably more real to be swept up in his embrace, to feel the warmth, to hear his beating heart within his chest, to instantly know the protective grip of his arms. It's one thing to hear he loves you. It's another thing to feel his love. This is the glorious work of the Spirit. We can hear all of this. We could, we could be beat over the head with, with the amount of Scripture that tells us that God is love, that he loves us, but it takes the application, the, the Spirit working in our heart so that I would say, Not only does he love, but he loves me. And taking it and making it mine. Realizing that that if, if I was the only lost sheep, he would leave the other 99 and he would chase after me because his love is that real. We prayed it earlier, but... But Paul prays for the church in Ephesus and he prays that, I pray that you would know how high and how wide and how long and how deep, like all of the dimensions of God's love, that you would know and experience that love. That it wouldn't be a head knowledge, but it would be an experience that only happens because of the work of the Spirit in our hearts and in our lives.
We have the, the beautiful triune God, what God has done, who he is, how he has saved us. And then finally, we have the promise in verse 7. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This heirs piece, I think, is, is where we begin to see the application of what God has done in our lives. An heir is someone who is going to receive from the Father. Right? They, if, if, if someone dies, their heir gets everything that they have. So they, sometimes that doesn't even wait until death. Sometimes heirs are given what, they, what they're going to get before the inheritance before the, the death happens. And so what we're promised here is that we are heirs with Christ according to the hope of eternal life. What do we receive? We receive what the Father has. So as we just looked at it, if we said God is good, if we said God is love, if we said God is kind, if we said God is merciful, then as heirs, now we get to be good, kind, loving, merciful. He's put his spirit within us to walk and, and to produce the fruit that only he can produce. Why? Because we're heirs. We're sons and daughters of the living God. Romans 8, 16 and 17 says this, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs to God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We are heirs with Christ. Christ, our brother. And we've received from the Father goodness, loving kindness, mercy. And so then Paul can write verse 8 that says, The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Listen, he gets to the works after pressing in and saying, listen, this is who you are because of what God has done. And because God has done it, now you're an heir. And so you're going to produce the same good works that God is producing. The story of God is not, doesn't end with you and I being regenerated. God is making all things new. He is recreating and restoring and redeeming all things. And you and I are the first fruits of that. And now, he, as He restores and redeems us, He invites us into doing that with Him. To seeing the broken and going to them. To seeing the lost and welcoming them in. To seeing the broken and, and the prideful and, and reminding them of the grace that we've received so that they can be humbled before a holy God and receive that same grace. God's inviting us into that. But, but here's the thing, we have this other shouting thing that says that we could live for ourselves, and we should. Like, there's going to be more pleasure if you do what you want to do. And yet, the promise of God is that we are going to be so, I love Noah Hardy reminding me of, of John Piper last night at dinner and saying, hey, Piper always says that we're going to be most... Um, we're, how does he say it? 
God's most glorified when we're most satisfied in Him. Right? Like, we get to be satisfied. Everything else is going to scream something else. And yet, God is offering to us today a satisfaction in His loving kindness, in His goodness, in His mercy that we're never going to experience anywhere else except in Him. And it's going to overshadow every other thing that would shout for your attention, for your affection, for your love, for your time. And today we have that in Christ. This is the promise of the good works that he's doing in and to and through us. As heirs, we get to be part of the good works of God. So application. What do we do in light of this? Well, it, it gets redundant, I know. But we repent and we believe. We believe that this is true. We repent of going to other things and trying to work out our own salvation and and trust in our own deeds. And we say, God, you have done everything that I need and you've invited me in to participate with you. It should lead to worship. Not just like four songs on a Sunday. Or if you're really good church, five songs on a Sunday or six songs. No, it should lead to all of life. Worshiping my God. I love the way Brennan Manning says it. He says, we should be astonished at the goodness of God. Stunned that he should bother to call us by name. Our mouths wide open at his love. Bewildered that at this very moment we are standing on holy ground. Like that's the kind of worship that we should have. In awe of the kindness, the goodness, the mercy of God. So I pray that that would be true. And that in all that, we would go tell others about that good news. Like we can do all the, all the great things. We can go help the poor and we can, we can make them be rich. We could heal the, the hurting and the broken and they could be whole in their physical bodies. But unless they have Jesus, they're going to be rich until they die. And then they're going to be really poor. They're going to be healthy until the end of their life. And then they're going to be broken. But right now we have the good news that they need to hear. I pray that our worship of a good God would lead us to share that with them. Amen? God, we thank you, Lord, that you are kind, that you are good, that you are loving, that you are merciful. God, I pray that we would get the order right even as we're called to walk in these good works, that we are called to um, glorify you with our lives, that we are called to go to the hurting and the broken, Lord, that we are called to live rightly, that we would remember that that only happens because you have changed our hearts. God, you have done the good work in us so that we would long for you, that we would want to know you, that we would want to worship you. And out of that worship, we would live lives that glorify you. Lord, help us to get that right. Help us to be explicit with that with our our neighbors, our friends, our family, people that look at us and say, why do you do everything that you do? Why do you live sacrificially? Why do you give of your time and your talent and your treasure to, to your neighbors, to those that are in the highways and the byways, those, are, those that are outcasts, why do you bring them in? 
Lord, that, that we would be explicit and say, because we were outcasts and Christ brought us in. Because we were broken and God has made us whole. Because we were unloved and Jesus loved us. Lord, would you help us to put words to the heart that you've given to us. And we would worship you in everything that we say and do. Thank you, Lord, for reminding us again today of your extravagant love for us, that you would, that you would appear, that you would love us and be kind to us and be merciful to us in your Son, and that you would apply that to our hearts, that you would give us the gift of faith and belief by the power of your Spirit. God, you are so kind, so good to us. May we leave changed. May we leave transformed, conformed. More and more, daily, hourly, minutely, to your, to your image. May we be heirs that look like you. May people see the resemblance of Christ in us. Thank you for your promises, Lord. We trust you and love you in Jesus' name. Amen.